Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is November 3rd, 2023. Happy beginning of Thanksgiving season to all those who celebrate. We've already got a lot of FDA and CMS news filling our cornucopia this week. First up is CMS. The agency began holding its public listening sessions for the drugs that are scheduled to be part of the new price negotiation program. Sarah, who got to speak and what did they say? Well, it seems like um, perhaps anybody who wanted to speak and signed up got to speak at the first session on Monday, which I watched, which was um, designed to talk about Eliquis. So um, the way Medicare has set these up is there is basically a session for each of the 10 drugs under negotiation. And since um, they didn't fill the whole amount of time allotted, it seems that they haven't gotten a ton of attention um, or interest in these, um, which again, it may not be that there's not interest, but it may be somehow how many people are actually being aware that this is an option. But um, it was a mixture of um, patients, people who kind of are professional patient advocates who, you know, work for organizations, you know, based often in D.C. and stuff who advocate around these sort of medication issues. Um, you know, some sort of some doctors, again, with an emphasis on, you know, people that kind of, I think, exist in that, um, you know, practice medicine, but also to kind of do health policy research and academia and stuff. So, you know, a mix of people that kind of are thinking about this from kind of a professional work point of view to some degree, and then people coming at it as just, you know, I'm a patient, I take this drug, and here's my experience compared to other drugs. But, um, you know, one theme that I thought was really interesting was there was a lot of concern that while Medicare, the regulations for the IRA will in make sure that, you know, a negotiated drug will have to be on the formulary of people's um, plans. It doesn't necessarily guarantee it's going to be at the same like placement or with the same, you know, copay or coinsurance or, you know, prior author lack thereof as it was before. And because essentially what will happen with the negotiation is the list price of the drug should drop. There was some concern that that might actually create like a perverse incentive for formularies the drug to be placed in a worse place on formularies compared to other drugs if PBMs can no longer get the rebates that they like to get from the drugs. And, you know, so like a parallel I was thinking about, you know, here is, you know, how sometimes like lower price biosimilars have had traction getting on formularies compared to or getting, you know, the placement they you might think they would get compared to a higher cost brand. So that was pretty interesting and something that we'll have to see how it plays out. I know like Sue Peskin from the Alliance for Aging Research was like trying to push CMS to sort of essentially create some kind of guardrails to ensure those sorts of things can happen. And I think particularly with a drug like an anticoagulant, um, you know, it's it's not a medication you can just kind of easily or without a lot of monitoring switch patients on and off from. 
another kind of big, I think, thing theme of people who spoke and I think was something teed up by the questions CMS was asking people to weigh on in, which was they were comparing um, their experience on Eloquest to other um, drugs in the blood thinner space, particularly warfarin, um, which um, is an older, much cheaper generic medicine. But you know, I think the general sentiment was it's it's more difficult for patients to manage being on that drug. It can require, you know, regular doctor's visits for blood work, more dietary changes. The adverse event profile was seen as, you know, unfavorable compared to Eliquis. So I think, you know, that probably helps give CMS a picture of, you know, why people value this drug at the even, you know, though it comes at a higher price point. I thought it was interesting. I think it was just one person, David Mitchell, who a lot of people probably know for his work um, at, for advocating for lower price drugs, talked because he personally, um, as a patient, um, takes the drug and talked about his experience, you know, being pres prescribed Eloquist, but his plan, Part D plan, trying to steer him to Zeralto. Um, and again, he brought up this issue that gets back to sort of PBM practices, which is that, you know, Eliquis and Zeralto, and Zeralto, for those who aren't aware, is also on the list of drugs subject to negotiation. But um, they basically both have, you know, comparable list prices. So his plan, it seemed like his plan was likely probably trying to steer him to one over the other because it was getting a better deal you know, with rebates on the one man, his argument was, you know, there were health benefits or he perceived there to be sort of clinical benefits to um, Eliquis. Um, you know, and a few other things I just noted from kind of like the first day of watching, you know, because this is sort of our first experience with this type of public hearing from Medicare. Um, Again, like I mentioned, they, they didn't get quite maybe the amount of participants you might have expected. So they had initially basically set aside enough time for 20 people to speak for three minutes. Um, they didn't fill up the whole time, but they still did make sure that everybody only had three minutes to speak, which a lot of, you know, patient and patient groups have said is not enough time. Um, a thing you're probably used to if you watch like FDA advisory committee public sessions is they were um, similarly, they were asked to voluntarily if they would disclose conflicts of interest. But the way this was handled was CMS when they were introducing the speaker just said, you know, here is, uh, you know, X person. They disclosed they have a conflict, which I felt like wasn't very helpful because they didn't actually tell you what the conflict was. That was kind of interesting and sort of, you know, a frustration, I think, for reporters who are trying to follow these things transparently. But um, so, you know, I think um, for, you know, less than an hour and a half of speaking, there were definitely lots of like interesting kind of dynamics to get. Um, I'm not sure how different, though, all the sessions will be going on and if we'll continue to really learn as much as it goes forward. But we'll see, the next thing will be to see how or if CMS can even make use of this information as it goes forward in the negotiations. Yeah, our, uh, our colleague, uh, Kathy Kelly, has covered the uh, subsequent uh, meetings this uh, this week. Uh, and uh, um, she, was, she was saying that it uh, seems like even fewer people are speaking at those. So, uh, uh, you know, maybe by the, uh, the, the 10th one, they'll, uh, 
they'll have a uh, um, just just a one three minute speaker or something. But uh, um, it is interesting that it has not uh, garnered all the attention that uh, you know uh, perhaps uh, we were expecting because sort of this is such a, such a big deal for uh, the industry and we've been covering the IRA uh, um, so much. But sort of in terms of sort of, kind of uh, you know patient output, there's there has their uh, input has not been sort of, kind of perhaps as much. Uh, Interest, interested in this as uh, people were expecting, so it's uh, um, interesting to uh, um, to see sort of kind of what uh, um, what might come of this if the sort of the they'll be dialed back in subsequent years or sort of kind of you know um, it'll grow in popularity in subsequent years because people will sort of realize that it, it, uh, it can make an impact if it if it uh, ends up uh, seeming to sort of have an impact on how the uh, the drugs are priced in this uh, in this first round. I guess that was my kind of. My question after reading reading Sarah's story was like, what's the actionable information that CMS is getting from this? Uh, then you know, I, I and you know, I admittedly I don't know if they can actually negotiate their, you know, the price to account for the PBMs making them inaccessible. I you know, I don't know if you can do that. If you could, how you would do it? Like you said, it they're you know, if they weren't that popular. And the people that are, you know, I guess I, I'm I'm still trying to kind of figure out in my own head what, I mean, transparency is a good thing, but what is what is Medicare getting from from these sessions? Are are they getting something that's helping either the negotiation process or the the selection process or you know one of you know probably a hundred other things they've got going on with IRA right now? Is you know is there any is there any idea? <laughs> You know, I, th I think like they are very interested in sort of understanding like what are the alternatives, what are the other options in the, f the field, and perhaps they use that somehow to think about, you know, some kind of like what is the value of these drugs, right, and thinking about that. I mean, I, again, I think there's a lot of um, the pharma industry would argue that, you know, the law has these very, you know, clear sort of mandated like minimum negotiations and how much CMS is able to or really can steer from that. And then, you know, like how much they're really considering, you know, other sort of methodologies to think about what's a fair price, I guess, is a bit unclear to people, I think, at this point. No, I was going to ask, I mean, is there any sense on, in yet, um, you know, is there any sense on why they're, why they haven't been that popular so far? I would think that these would have filled up quick and they'd be running over because people won't, you know, they've got so many people that want to talk. I don't really know. I would guess it maybe just like, did they, how much did they advertise this, right? And reach their audience, you know, um, I think we learned about this from the federal register. I don't think, you know, that many people, uh, you know, just like random Medicare um, recipients who don't look at the health, the federal register for their job or sitting there, you know, <laughs> scanning the federal register. And even if you are like, you know, the federal register is not exactly like a, um, the most user-friendly document to read <laughs> and then sign up. So my guess is it could just be right, like an advertising failure, essentially. Like, I mean, if you think about like if FDA advisory committee meetings and public sessions, I feel like a lot of who, a lot of the patients that end up 
speaking there get to it through like you know somehow like involvement in the trial or you know some kind of connection to the company that <laughs> um is working on the drug and so forth or a patient group that let them know so perhaps if there wasn't enough sort of like time to for sort of medicare's like those secondary like surrogates to then alert people to it they just didn't get enough notice again i think it's also like it's a little bit maybe more confusing to people when you go to an fda advisory committee or even like a cdc advisory committee and there's sort of a clear decision point being made right you can be advocating in favor or against approval of a drug but maybe it's like a little bit harder for people to think about like well what is the value of their comments again what is cms doing for with these comments and then what is helpful to to know about like what does you know communicating to cms that a person finds this drug really valuable as a patient or finds it valuable compared to x y or z drug or do for them there i mean there were definitely people that um you know talked about affordability issues and concerns about health inequities that have occurred because you know Eliquis was more is more expensive than cheaper um, alternatives that maybe don't work as well or you know create you know some comparable like negative side effects and so there I guess CMS could take that as a some sort of like motivation to negotiate harder right but I, I guess I think the like maybe the lack of clarity of okay what is CMS going to do with this information and what do they need to what do they really know to help this process along may kind of deter people or make it not clear for them to know what kind of input they need. It's a, it's a great point, uh, Sarah. There's no uh, clear lever that the uh, patients can lean on as we're kind of push things one way or another in terms of sort of, kind of what uh, uh, you know what CMS will end up uh, actually actually doing uh, doing after this. So uh, it uh, there's no no way to know sort of, kind of if what they said made a difference either because it's sort of it's it's not uh, it's not like there was a sort of a question before a uh, committee that sort of, kind of they were uh, you know arguing yes or uh, yes or no on so. Right, and and act right there. Just it's a kind of a pure listening mode session. Um, you know, X person, your turn. Go, go, rapid fire. So yeah, there was not like interaction um, between the agency and the speakers here. Well, we'll have to see if maybe they mentioned later on that they you know the how they the comments have impacted their uh, the work. But uh, it's an interesting story. Thanks, Sarah. Next up, we're going to talk about the Duchenne muscular dystrophy gene therapy, Elevitus. Sarepta announced top-line data from the product's confirmatory study. The product missed the primary endpoint, which was change in North Star ambulatory assessment score. While patients on the gene therapy improved more than those on placebo, the difference was not statistically significant. The company tried to spin the miss as a win, however, arguing that NSAA score is not sufficiently sensitive to detect changes in these patients. Sarepta said secondary endpoints like time to rise from the floor where there was a difference favoring Elevitus illustrated the drug's success. The company said it still will file a supplemental application seeking a label expansion to include all ages and no restrictions on ambulation. But Sarepta's stock price was crushed after the news, dropping from over more than $107 after hours on Monday to $57.45 by Tuesday morning. The price had recovered somewhat by Thursday afternoon to $77.76, but is still obviously way down. 
Analysts still believe the FDA will keep Elevitus on the market, but a label expansion may be hard to come by, at least for now. One of the questions I asked in the story is whether another advisory committee meeting may be necessary for this. So do you all think we're going to see another public discussion of Elevitus? I think if uh, FDA wants to expand the label, they will certainly uh, have to have one. Uh, just to, uh, given the uh, uh, attention to this, it uh, um, it seems like that would be, uh, be prudent on their part. And then obviously if they want to uh, pull it, they, they need to have one. Uh, uh, given the um, the procedures, even the expedited procedures uh, call for at least uh, um, uh, you know at least one advisory committee uh, um, to uh, take up that question uh, um, before FDA can take action. So either way, I do see an advisory committee uh, um, more likely, obviously, uh, um, with the approval, just because that's the statutory requirement, or with the uh, with the, the uh, pulling the approval if that's the uh, since that's that's your statutory requirement. But uh, um, I do think it would be prudent if they wanted to expand the label to uh, um, to uh, you know air this uh, scientific uh, um, uh, discussion uh, out in uh, out in public. The um, you know the initial uh, advisory committee was uh, um, you know a, a thumbs up. Uh, um, uh, for Shrepta, so in, in some senses that seems like it uh, um, might be uh, might be good for them. But my uh, sense is it was not it was not a uh, uh, very enthusiastic uh, one by the committee. There was a lot of uh, hesitation and waiting for the uh, um, waiting for the trial. And uh, you know at that time, uh, you know Shrepta had a lot of confidence in the uh, in the trial, and we really were kind of leaning on that as part of their uh, argument to get. Uh, Accelerated approval, and then uh, all of a sudden they realize their endpoints are lousy. So it, uh, um, I'm not uh, quite sure what that says about their uh, their scientific judgment, but uh, be curious for kind of where they go in uh, terms of uh, next study steps on uh, um, on this. Yeah, I mean, the more you think about it, the more you wonder if you know. I, I keep coming back to the like the the question of whether FDA FDA reviewers are going to say. You know, okay, it missed the primary endpoint. What do we do with all these second, all the secondary endpoint data? And th th it seems like it's kind of like the classic. We need to have a public discussion of this with, you know, statistical people, with clinicians. We need to hear the patients chime in. You know, we've heard them all chime in about how, you know, the impact of of the product in general. But I'm being just, you know, kind of what the meaning of a difference in being able to get up off the floor is, you know, in, you know, in real life. I mean, obviously none of us have, you know, I mean, I have no idea what it's like to have um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy or know anybody who has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So, you know, you, you hear these kinds of stories all the time where people talk about um, or patients talk about, you know, saying like, you know, I just want to be able to go from, you know, to be able to walk from like my morning classes in school to my to lunch without without it being like this huge burden or it being like just like taking everything I have just to walk, you know, down the hallway, you know, and that's that's an important endpoint for them, you know, it, more important than something like uh, a, a change in like a in a in a, a score or a or, you know, some kind of rating. So. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if they maybe need to hear that if they need, you know, if they want to, you know, the other thing is they may, the FDA ought, likes to have committee meetings sometimes to air their own grievances, for lack of a better term. Um, if they have problems with 
whether it's the confront you know the the data that was just um just announced or whatever come has already been you know whatever they already have in house which we know a lot of the a lot of the review staff were not in favor of you know that they may want another public forum to kind of be able to get that out there and you know and discuss it um you know some more again that's uh, there's no guarantee that could happen they could just you know we've also thought there is no way they're not going to have a public meeting uh, advisory committee on this and they've just you know gone and signed off on it so you know you're you know everyone i think is probably guessing at this point what's going to happen i think that um i don't know i i guess i have a hard time thinking about this and not as as taking thinking about this without thinking about this broader context of FDA supposedly in this error of trying to really make sure they're like holding accelerated approval drugs to the, to, you know, the, I'm struggling to grasp the word, but like really holding them to what that pathway is supposed to be, which is, you know, you are supposed to eventually be able to prove some clinical benefit and making sure that, you know, you know, accelerated approval is not just like a lower pathway for drugs to get on market and never have to really bear that out. And I think this is an interesting one because it's a gene therapy. So say you pull the product, you're not, um, the patients who already got it, right, are not going to be affected. It's going to be kind of what happens to this next generation of patients. Um, so it's a little bit interest. It's a little bit different dynamic, I think, than, um, some other drugs, but I think FDA kind of has to grapple with, and your story sort of gets at this too, is like, what are the precedents FDA starts to set or has set? And at what point do you say like, we can't keep, you know, we have to get away from these precedents of just letting these drugs linger, linger on. And there's no clear um, evidence they're really doing what, what they want them to do. And I think, cost at some point becomes a factor here, you know, patients, you know, when we pay, when the health system pays for certain products, or they that takes away money from other things. And I think if nothing else, payers are going to start to demand um, higher levels of evidence before they pay for some of these. But I, I start to wonder, again, if you believe some of what was shown in their trial was sort of hypothesis. I mean, essentially, like they seems like they met some secondary endpoints. It's maybe, you know, it becomes hypothesis generating. Like, isn't that the point where you feel like the company should be sort of on the hook to pay for the trials and really fully approve, fully prove the drug works before we sort of give it to more patients and put the sort of that payment burden on them and the system? Otherwise, again, I think you sort of get back into these precedents FDA has been worried about in other spaces, which is that, um, you know, the, the full promise of accelerated approval doesn't, you know, get borne out. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough situation. Again, you know, these are the things that I wouldn't you know, I don't think Solomon could have made a lot of these decisions, you know, and I didn't even think about the the issue with, you know, it, the gene therapy is a one time thing. You know, if you pull it, what do you do with all the people who got the one time shot? You know, it's not like the drug like eventually clears your system. So, you know, 
it, uh, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I'm being flipped, but it's not, I'm sure there's some kind of, you know, they have to make, they, the FDA may have to make arrangements for Sarepta to keep following them if they, you know, for whatever, for safety reasons or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's a, I, I you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't know how you, I don't know how you deal with that situation. I don't know how, I don't even know if they know how to deal with that situation. On the other hand, that um, it makes it easier, unlike, say, uh, 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 other accelerated approvals where companies have basically said, um, you know, we're not going to be able to to conduct a new trial. <laughs> At least, you, you know, you certainly have a um, available patient population to keep studying the long term mm-hmm. benefits of and you would think they would be engaged in um, tracking that. <laughs> Um, which creates another sort of interesting dynamic here, right? There, it's not like um, you know McKenna, where um, you know it's it's a sort of a drug where you take for a very, for sort of a short amount of time to prevent an outcome, and you kind of keep needing new populations of patients. Here, you sort of have um, potentially a cohort of people you can compare to, you know maybe, you know, like historic kind of controls or something like that to keep figuring out um, if this drug works, particularly if you, if the argument is, you know, that this trial needed to just go for longer to really show the benefit. You keep wondering, and and we all know, I mean, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you've heard us talk about Sarepta's long regulatory history. Um, you know, they have several DMD drugs available now. They've had Controversy, controversy, uh, maybe the way you call it, you say it. I don't know. Um, over some of the decisions the FDA has made in the past related to them, so you know, I wonder if if this was another company, would would this would these decisions be the same? Would the would the would things be treated the same way? You know, I mean, it, not at the FDA. I'm talking about you know just the public perception. You know, would we? Would we be having these quest, you know, discussions and questions like, well, they failed the endpoint, but you know, maybe it gets, maybe it it, it survives anyway. I don't know, you know, it, it'll it's an interesting thing to watch, and you know, one of these, you know, again, these this will be a great like either book or business case study or you know something with you know that uh, you know the academics will enjoy, uh, you know, kind of get digging into and, and teaching maybe, you know, down the road. Finally, today, we're going to look at gene therapy, in particular, gene editing products. CBER director Peter Marks made some interesting statements the past few days about how these products are regulated. A big concern with gene editing is, of course, unknowingly causing heritable genetic modifications. For a long time, that fear caused the agency to create a high safety bar for the products to be tested in humans. But Mark said that the FDA's confidence with gene editing is growing and that it now may, be, now may be ready to lower the safety bar. That could begin attracting more clinical trials to the U.S. than had been that had been going elsewhere. Mark's also wants sponsors to take advantage of ex- FDA expertise in gene editing so development programs can be successful. So do you all think now we're going to see this explosion in gene editing trials coming to the U.S. or, you know, do we want an explosion of gene editing trials in the U.S.? I, I don't know. It's it, it's an interesting question to ponder. Well, explosion sounds bad, but uh, maybe flourishing is the uh, the uh, the uh, the more uh, salesy uh, uh, or uh, I don't know how to make flourishing a noun actually, but um, uh, flourishment. 
I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, I think if you, if you spin it as like, uh, you know, increasing opportunities for uh, um, for patients, it would be very good. If you spin it as, uh, you know, a un unproven new technology, you know, being injected into uh, Amer Americans arms, we know how that, how that works. So uh, um, or how, that, <laughs> how, how that plays out. But, uh, um, you know, I, I, uh, you know, Peter March was we didn't talk about him in the uh, Strepto segment we just had, but, you know, he was obviously a, a key player in getting uh, um, um, uh, getting that uh, um, uh, approved uh, um, and will be sort of kind of a uh, focal point of attention as they sort of kind of uh, have to uh, decide what to do with the accelerated approval or perhaps even the expansion. But uh, um, he is um, uh, very interested in, in sort of kind of improving uh, um, uh, gene therapy uh, development. And uh, um, this is among the things that he's been talking about in terms of sort of kind of making that uh, um Making that easier for sponsors, so uh, he would really like to see it happen, and I think that kind of a signal would uh, only encourage uh, um, sponsors to do so. There's a, a small bit of pressure to sort of kind of to uh, um, to increase uh, uh, usage in uh, um, in the U.S. given the uh, FDA's uh, um, you know uh, trial diversity goals, which uh, you know. Uh, could be more easily satisfied, uh, you know, if you sort of kind of uh, um, conducted these trials in a broad swath of the U.S. population, as opposed to sort of kind of, trying to kind of recreate the U.S. population sort of uh, uh, overseas. Or, um, so that's sort of a, a point in the favor. But obviously, sort of kind of the uh, um, the fact that they're probably more expensive and there may be more uh, regulations continuing in the U.S. than uh, than elsewhere might uh, um, might vote against it. So. Uh, um, We'll have to see sort of kind of how uh, um, how serious FDA and uh, um, the federal government overall is about uh, encouraging these trials, and uh, um, and then sort of sponsors will be able to uh, to make a decision. Yeah, Peter Marks is the uh, the the comment about you know I want I want sponsors to like benefit from our regulatory experience or our regulatory advice is really telling. It 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 almost seems like he wants to be you know if. You know, if the if the FDA isn't viewed as closed to these sorts of products, then they can sort of you know still kind of influence the you know the development process and kind of whether it be you know uh, you know creating best practices or you know whether best research practices or you know kind of ensuring that some of these programs don't go off the rails right away and then investment capital goes away. Um, you know, that, that, I think that's, you know, that might be, you know, kind of the importance, you know, one of the things that he's thinking about here. Um, and it, and to an extent, it is an interesting, it's an interesting thought because you want the, you want to spur development in this area, but you still have to be really careful and you have to make sure that you have to kind of make that balance. And, you know, you know, it seems like, um, you know, Dr. Marks trusts, the agency to be able to do that and you know maybe you know the others he's not you know he doesn't know what what advice they're getting from you know from uh, other regulators yeah that was i mean that sort of one big takeaway for me was like he he was trying like i feel like is maybe what companies should hear from that is right like if you're thinking you're going to want to get this product approved in the u.s you probably want to talk to fda before you do the studies you want to use to submit them to make sure you're following our our, you know, advice and guidance, which I, I would think like having followed lots of advisory committees and things over the years, right? That's uh, probably like, you know, good advice because you can see what happens when people well-meaningly do things that isn't what FDA wants to see. So it seems like 
I feel like that's like a big, t maybe a good takeaway from what he's saying, even if you don't end up actually conducting your studies in the US. But um, I guess I wasn't quite sure from some of his remarks, though, how much he was also like, again, what regulatory bars are shifting and why, I guess, um, you know, like it's one thing if the science is changing to lower bars, I guess like there were some remarks that I wasn't sure if they were also felt like they had to shift the bar to again, bring the research to the US and whether th that's, you know, the best reason or justification for shifting the bar. Because I, I, I think, again, the one reason over the years the FDA has gotten the reputation it has and, you know, drugs approved by it is because it has, right, a, a bar that in most cases people feel like, you know, really does uphold a strong FDA you know, efficacy and safety standard. And, um, you know, just because just because other countries are willing to allow certain things to go forward, I'm not sure FDA should just, you know, say, okay, well, we'll take that too, because we're now worried we're not attracting certain types of research. So, I, 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 again, it, it's hard for me to know based on the comments and the story where that balance is between the science has, just, has shifted and where they also feel like they have to do some of this to kind of just compete um with other countries well yeah and, and you know I, I i understand that and i don't want it to sound like that you know we're going to just allow anything willy-nilly and i mean that that's the the problem when you when you get at the we set you know when you start talking about bars being too high and lowering you know the perception of that can get out of whack really quick right so um, yeah, I, I think I think one of the I think what they were talking about is just, you know, normal kind of human subject protections when they didn't know kind of what was going to happen with, you know, when you when you get some of these gene editors and, you know, they were trying to make, you know, make sure that the, that, you know, safety was insured and all those things. And that's fine. But, you know, you can go overboard on some of that. And I think, you know, it sounded like that maybe they overshot some of the issues that are some of the things that they were re with some of the requirements or whatever whatever it was and companies started going to other countries because they were the perception right or wrong was that the fda wasn't going to let this happen so it, you know he's trying to make it make people understand that you know no we are open to doing these types of things maybe we were you know we need to recalibrate i think was the word he used um a little bit and but you know we do have experience we want to offer advice you know you can do these trials here if you want to do them here yeah i think it you know it's a yeah it it's a tough uh <laughs> a tough a tough kind of sell to make because yeah like you said Terry, you don't want to you don't want people to think that you know you're just all of a sudden letting anything happen to because you don't want them to go to other to go to other countries Marks also suggested in another story that we wrote on that related to this topic was that the um, growth of gene editing development around the world could force Congress to rethink its ban on FDA receiving applications where a human embryo is created or modified with a heritable genetic modification. This is ban the ban right now. It's an appropriations rider. It's one of these that's been in place for years, and it just keeps getting thrown into the bill over and over again. This issue, at least when I remember first seeing it, I thought it was connected to the abortion debate, which is as divisive as ever on Capitol Hill now. Um, 
Do you all see Congress rethinking this? I know we've, I, I was surprised that one of the things I saw re, revi, revisiting the original debate over this was that there there were questions of whether this was a ban like this would hinder development for drugs for rare diseases. So, you know, I'm wondering, do you all think that, does this get a serious rethink or is this one of those that they just, they're too afraid to touch because they don't want to just have, open up the the arguments on on, on all the other political stuff surrounding it. I, I don't see this uh, um, changing. I mean, it's, it's uh, interesting that sort of that uh, Jim March is comfortable for kind of advocating for legislative change. That obviously means it's sort of, kind of it's uh, sort of on the uh, the White House's radar, and they're comfortable enough for kind of getting that uh, um, discussion going in public like this. But uh, in terms of sort of kind of different uh, hill dynamics that might. Uh, might lead to that uh, language being uh, removed. Uh, uh, it's hard for me to imagine sort of kind of what uh, what's different now that sort of would cause that not to be in the uh, the appropriations uh, bills for years to come. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to. I feel like um, the other thing. I thought there was another like big international meeting on this topic fairly recently, and I'm not sure where the consensus is there. But like, I think there's like broader kind of global bioethical things being worked out. And I think, um, you know, I think Republicans would have a hard time changing this, but without that sort of maybe broader global um, consensus on what you can and can't do kind of clearly um, written out, I think it would be harder for the U.S., like even on the Democratic side to change this. Like, I think maybe, you know, if FDA wants changes, they might have to think about ways to like really kind of like narrow or tailor it to certain scientific or like medically accepted, you know, research purposes at this point because of some of the concerns you raised in your story about, you know, designer children, you know, and I think the disability community sometimes gets very concerned with how some of this um, gene editing could work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty big um, loaded topic. Um, it just, again, given where we currently are in the U.S. with the abortion debate and now it's it would seem almost like impossible to broach if it had to be something that would go through Congress. Um, but Again, I also think like in reading the story, I was like, you know, you were sort of there, Derek, but I do sort of wonder like what other people within FDA or within the U.S. scientific and bioethical community would say in response to it, because it felt a little bit like Peter Marks was saying, well, other countries are doing this, so the U.S., we may need to do it too. And with a little less like convincing, I felt like he needed to sort of convince me a little bit more. Okay, like why do we know now that this is maybe scientifically acceptable or ethical or safe or all those things? Like I needed to hear a little bit more about that as well because some of this come came across a little bit like you know, well, if you know these other places are going to do it, we need to get involved as well. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's a tough one. I mean, I, again, I, these are decisions that I, you know, way above my pay grade. I, I don't know. How, I mean, I don't think there's any right answer to this that, you know, where you satisfy people. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know. Maybe it's worth the discussion. Like you said, Sarah, if they, if they have if they have scientific consensus somewhere or if they even had to, scientists are having these discussions, you start broaching it again. But, yeah, I don't I don't know if. 
I don't know if this one even gets brought up at an appropriations committee hearing in the future, just be, unless unless the you know the tone around this issue changes a lot, you know, in the next you know year, or six months, or whatever you however long you want to try and or you want to think about. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time.